This is Polar Voices. I'm Kelsey Gabrowski. Kluwani National Park and Reserve sits in the southwestern corner of Yukon. It is home to the tallest mountain in Canada, Mount Logan, and the largest non-polar ice field in the world. This ice-rich landscape is a mecca for glaciologists. Luke Copland hops in a helicopter and describes the view from above. It's very difficult to get a handle on the scale because there aren't the regular features that you're used to to give you reference. You know, there aren't houses there, there aren't trees. The glaciers at Kluwani are very large, he says. One of the main glaciers they study, Kaskawolsh Glacier, is 80 kilometers, or about 50 miles, long. So you can easily fit you know, decent-sized towns just in the terminus region of the glacier. When you fly the entire length of the glacier, what takes an hour, an hour's worth of flying in you know, the mainland US or other parts, you can, you can cross entire states in that, that amount of time. The Kaskawalsh Glacier is one of many outlet glaciers branching off the massive ice field that sprawls across the tops of the St. Elias Mountains. Gwen Flowers is an associate professor in the Department of Earth Science at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. She says the ice field feeds the glaciers. So if you imagine the ice cap like an ice cream cone, if you held a, a big chunk of ice cream in your hand and it started to melt, it would drip between your fingers. So these individual corridors of ice are flowing between the gaps in the valleys, but they're fed by a much larger reservoir. And that makes them interesting because as they change in thickness, they flow faster, they flow slower, the amount of ice that each outlet is tapping into can actually change because all of these glaciers in a way are sharing a common reservoir. Flower spends about a month every summer on the glaciers in the St. Elias Mountains. The main question that we're asking, which is similar to what our whole scientific community is asking, is what's going to happen with glaciers and ice sheets in the future? But to understand that big question, we ask smaller questions. Flowers studies glaciers by using instruments to measure them and computers to model them. Laurent Mingo, owner of Blue Systems Integrations, joins her on the glacier with an ice-penetrating radar in tow. So it's essentially, it's a radar, so it has two components. He has a transmitter and he has a receiver. The transmitter is going to send a ping of radio frequency energy downward into the ice and that signal is going to bounce off uh, up to the surface. Uh, there, there's going to be a receiver that's going to receive that and based on the time it takes to go down and back up, uh, we'll know how far uh, is the point where there was a reflection. So the first thing you can see, you can find the bed of the glacier, that is where the interface of the glacier and, and the bedrock, for instance, but also you can find some internal layerings at times, so that can give the scientists some uh, information on the internal of the glacier. Mingo develops computer-based systems that acquire data, such as the radar he tows behind him as he treks across the glacier. This radar measures ice thickness, and even layers within the ice, by reflecting off dust and impurities. It, it's mounted on skis right now because it's, it works very well either on bare ice or snow. It could be mounted on a snow machine, it could be mounted on a helicopter uh, with some few quirks to work out because a helicopter travels faster than a snow machine and faster than a person. But the idea remains the same. Flowers was surprised to find internal layering within her glaciers because, for the most part, cold ice is completely transparent to the radar. But we were seeing reflections from inside the ice, and it turns out those reflections were coming from ice that was warmer. That warm ice was close to its melting point, so it had a little bit of water in it. Radar can't travel through water, so that water was reflecting the radar signal back. 
Flowers and her team developed models and simulated future climate conditions to see if they could predict what would happen to these glaciers as climate warms. And what we found for our study glaciers is that as the climate warms, we actually expect our glaciers to get colder. So that was initially a surprise, but the way this works is that the glacier is trapping heat by actually trapping water in its snow cover. And when you trap water in that snow cover, it has the ability to refreeze. And when water freezes, it actually releases an enormous amount of heat. And that's the heat pump that's responsible for making ice that's relatively warm, so near the melting point. If in a future climate we reduce the snow cover on the glaciers, we're effectively reducing this sponge that's able to trap water and therefore produce heat. So it's like we're taking the heat pump out of the glacier. Even though the glaciers flower studies are expected to get cooler as snow cover decreases, flower says these glaciers are still shrinking. However, cold ice moves more slowly than warm ice, so it may slow down the melting process a bit. The study of how glaciers move and deform is a critical part of glaciology. To monitor movement, Copland and his team jam GPS-equipped poles into the glacier. The motion of the glacier, we can track how it's moving horizontally, but we can also track how it's moving vertically, too. Copland says that the volume of glaciers changes with the seasons. It kind of basically inflates as it fills up with water in the summer, and then it, we find it tends to deflate in the winter as it, as it reduces in volume as the water goes away. The glaciers in this area move three to six feet per day, but the presence of water can change this. Copland and his team discovered that glaciers don't necessarily speed up their slow churning and calving when there's more surface melt. During these times, water flows through and under the glacier in large channels, allowing it to drain before it can whittle away more ice. In cooler summers, that water gets trapped under the glacier, building pressure. Um, when there's high pressure, it slightly lifts the glacier off the, off the bed. Um, that's what defines how quickly it can move. And the glaciers don't even settle down during the cold Yukon winters. So before we did this study, most people believed that really glaciers were basically sat there, did really nothing in the winter. In the winter here in Kluane, it's typically minus 20, minus 30. There's no melt occurring on the surface, but when, when we measure the motion, there's really big variations in the motion that occur during the winter. And I think that was really the big surprise for us. Flowers says that many of the glaciers in the Kluane region are surge-type glaciers meaning that they periodically change speed. That means they're like yo-yos, so sometimes they go fast and sometimes they go slow, but in a way that doesn't correspond to what's, what climate is doing. To understand surge glaciers, you need to know how their internal properties or dynamics control their behavior and complicate their response to climate. So if we can understand well the dynamics, we can extract that part of the signal and then we can make interpretations about the direct effects that climate is having on the glaciers. Surge glaciers feed off large reservoirs of ice, but with climate change, these reservoirs aren't being replenished with snow. So that surging behavior is starting to shut down. This is interesting to us because we normally thought of surges as being products of internal dynamics and not very related to climate, but we're now starting to realize increasingly that climate actually does have a control on surges in a way the climate can starve the glacier of its previous ability to surge. Flowers, mango, and copland return to their snowy, cold field sites every summer. Copland says he sometimes wears a down jacket to bed 
stuffed into three sleeping bags. But saying that, it's often not that bad because from the start of April onwards, it's 24 hour daylight where we're working that far north. And so even though it might be you know, minus 20 outside, it's typically bright sunshine at that time of year. So you get solar heating that warms up the tent even at two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. It's bright sunshine the whole time. So, so that really helps out. Flowers says she wouldn't trade her field site for anything. I think people are surprised that we'd like to spend a month out in the snow in the middle of summer, but perhaps that's just because they haven't been there. I think our field sites are extraordinarily beautiful and the experience of being out there is a complete privilege. To hear more from glaciologists or listen to other voices featured on this program, visit the Polar Voices page at thepolarhub.org. Polar Voices is produced by the UA Museum of the North in collaboration with the Arctic Institute of North America as part of the Polar Learning and Responding Climate Change Education Partnership.